welcome to episode 152 of The Climate Champions. Check out past episodes on theclimatechampions.com. I'm Lee Crevat, host of The Climate Champions. If you or someone you know is a climate champion, please let me know at crevatenergyinnovations.com. My featured guest today is Congressperson Mike Levin, representing California's 49th Congressional District, just a few miles away from where I lived for 24 years. Throughout his career, Mike has been a passionate leader on environmental protection, clean energy, and combating climate change. Currently serving his third term in the House of Representatives, Mike is a member of the House Committee on Natural Resources and the House Committee on Veterans Affairs, where he serves as ranking member of the Subcommittee on Economic Opportunity. Through these roles, more than two dozen of his bills have been signed into law by presidents of both parties. The Climate Champions is sponsored, in part, by the Gridwise Alliance. Uniting grid modernization experts from across the electricity industry, the Gridwise Alliance promotes grid innovation for a decarbonized economy. To learn more, visit gridwise.org. Be sure to catch the next episode of The Climate Champions, my very special annual Grid Connects live hot seat conversation. This year with the head of the Office of Electricity, Assistant Secretary of Energy, Jean Rodriguez. A super fun discussion with important takeaways. And on February 28th, be sure to catch a live episode of The Climate Champions from the floor of Distributech International. I'll be interviewing Whit Fulton, CEO at Connector, the one-and-done connection solution for electric vehicles, solar power, and home energy backup. This year, Distributech is February 26th through 29th in Orlando, Florida. I was on the EV Advisory Committee this year, and we have an amazing lineup of presenters. I'm sure the other tracks are also excellent as always, offering a wealth of education, information, and solutions to drive the transmission and distribution industries forward. And of course, the Expo. It is truly one of a kind. I'll be doing another video montage this year, interviewing companies that are helping to mitigate climate change. So please look for me and let's catch up. If you haven't registered yet, please use my promo code for a 20% discount at distributech.com. The code is, in all caps, DTPART30. That's DT Part 30. Mike was raised in South Orange County and attended local elementary and junior high schools. He spent his high school years at Loyola High in Los Angeles and went on to study at Stanford University, where he served as the student body president. Prior to being elected to Congress in 2018, Mike fought for climate action while working as an environmental attorney. He also served on the board of the Center of Sustainable Energy and co-founded SustainOC, helping accelerate the transition toward more sustainable power generation and transportation alternatives. Welcome to the Climate Champions. I'm Lee Crevat, and I'm here with Congressperson Mike Levin, U.S. Representative for California's 49th District. Mike, welcome to the Climate Champions. Thank you so much, Lee. I'm excited to be with you. You know, I only lived a few miles from your district when you announced your candidacy. It was so exciting and even more exciting when you won. 
I started running in uh, 2017 and we did very well. We won the primary in June of 2018 and then we won a big election in November of 2018 as part of that wave where we flipped about 40 seats all across the country and we had a big win and then we won re-election in 2020 and 2022 and uh, onward and upward. I'm thrilled to be now in my third term and really just honored to have the opportunity to serve the community. And I'm so excited that you're such a climate champion and you have been one for so long. That's very exciting. Well, before I was elected to Congress, I was an environmental attorney by trade and I focused on clean energy for communities throughout California. It's always been personal to me because of where I grew up in Southern California. We grew up in the era of the smog alerts. Your listeners who uh, grew up in Southern California probably can relate. And I remember very well being in uh, grade school and high school, and you'd run one or two times around the track and your lungs would burn from all the stuff in the air. And, you know, through the hard work of folks at CARB and and the state level and the uh, continued ability for California to have a waiver from the Federal Clean Air Act to set tougher emissions standards, we were able to do a, a remarkable amount. I give great credit to so many people, but it became very important for me to want to be part of that positive progress. So I did that in the nonprofit world, the for-profit world, and the trade association that I helped to start in Orange County for the clean tech industry and decided in 2018 to run myself and have been uh, grateful ever since. I represent a district with 52 miles of coast in uh, San Diego and Orange County and a lot of unique problems that are directly related to the climate crisis. Uh, We're experiencing the effects of climate change on a daily basis. Our our beaches are eroding, our our coastal bluffs are at risk of collapse, and uh, our weather patterns are dramatically changing. I'd like to think that we've been able to do a lot of good. You know, I served on the, the Select Committee for the Climate Crisis. I was one of three freshmen on that committee, and we produced a lot of important work that led to ultimately led to the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, which included the most significant climate-related provisions in the history of any country to dramatically reduce greenhouse gases. So we have a lot of work to do, though, and we're just getting started because, you know, obviously the climate crisis continues to loom and we need uh, proactive solutions that are up to the challenges that we face. For those outside of California... CARB is the California Air Resources Board and was formed in 1967 by then-Governor Ronald Reagan. Today, CARB is charged with protecting the public from the harmful effects of air pollution and developing programs and actions to fight climate change. You mentioned the smog. With me, it was the fires in San Diego that came very, very close to San Diego Gas and Electric's data center. And I was in charge of the data center. So that was very important. I was driving into the data center while everybody I knew was driving out of San Diego. White ash was falling on my car. And that's when I decided, you know, I had to focus on this. When did you decide that climate change was something you wanted to vote yourself to? Well, I remember I was in college Vice President Gore had come out with a book called Earth in the Balance. I remember that book, and it definitely left an impact on me. And then somebody I've gotten to know quite well, Ron Pernick and Clint Wilder. Clint is a a good friend, and they released a book around 2005 or six called The Clean Tech Revolution. And so I was already leaning in that direction. I graduated from Stanford in 2001. 
And I wound up going to Duke for law school. Duke had and still has a great, great environmental law program. And so I was interested in working towards that. But then when I saw Clinton Ron's book, it just clicked. And I knew that that's where I wanted to focus my time and effort. I worked for a big law firm and helped them grow a clean energy practice. I helped start a nonprofit that tried to grow the clean energy industry in Orange County. And I wound up going in-house to two different clean tech companies to, to try to help them grow their businesses before deciding to run for Congress in 2017, end of 2016, beginning of 2017. It built up over time, Lee, because when I heard what then candidate Trump was saying about climate, everything that I thought I knew about politics and about truth versus lies, it was all being challenged all at once. And when when he won, when he defeated Secretary Clinton, I said, you know, it's no no more sitting on the sidelines for me. I need to jump in the ring. And so, you know, with a lot of help and with the extraordinary support of my wife, without whom I couldn't do any of this, I announced my candidacy in March of 2017 and we were off and running. Listeners may remember episode 67 back in June of 2020 when Ron was on The Climate Champions. If you don't remember, give it a listen. It was a great episode. What drives you from a personal perspective to make a difference? My kids, they're 11 and 9 years old. I think a lot about the planet they're going to inherit, the ability for them to enjoy the same or better quality of life that I have enjoyed growing up in beautiful coastal Southern California. So it's, it's the legacy that I want them to have. And knowing that I can make some positive change is really rewarding. doesn't happen every day. I mean, in in the halls of Congress, we deal with a lot of nonsense. And the reality is that the legislative process sometimes takes a backseat to, you know, what can only be called performance art or, you know, shameless self-promotion or self-aggrandizement. The media is often focused on those who are willing to say and do the most controversial and outrageous things. But at the end of the day, I, I hope I'm evaluated on the basis of the legislation that we've gotten across the finish line. It isn't always who gets the credit that matters. It's what what policy objectives have you achieved? So I'm very proud of a lot of what we've done. You know, I'll give you an example. In the Inflation Reduction Act, there were specific provisions that directly tracked legislation that I had introduced in the House and some, you know, that we'd passed in the House. At the end of the day, there are many, many of us members of Congress that saw our legislation come to fruition. It's not about the name at the top as much as the policy objective. And, and I hope that more of my colleagues will focus on getting the right policies across the finish line as opposed to being able to have the most retweets or reposts, I guess, now. When you're with your colleagues and you find one or two or a hundred that don't understand or agree with the data or about climate change and what's going on, how do you convince them otherwise? You know, I would not say it's a one size fits all. I always believe that you got to meet people where they are. And uh, I've found that with some, you can persuasively make an economic argument that growing the clean energy jobs of the future will be good for their districts. I had a good conversation with a Republican friend. I won't tell you which member because I don't want to blow their cover. But 
this individual said, you know, it's really something that all these new project announcements from the Inflation Reduction Act are coming in red districts. How'd you guys do that? That's what he said. How'd you guys do that? I mm-hmm. said, well, we didn't do that. That's where uh, those investments made the most sense. And if it's beneficial for red districts or for blue districts, I just want things that are going to create good public policy and good jobs across the country and accelerate our transition to a clean energy future. The other thing I've tried to do is talk about energy independence, because we want that too. Those of us that want clean energy, we want energy independence. We want to be free of bad geopolitics. We just want clean energy independence. And we can have, I believe, both the clean energy transition and the jobs, the economic development that come with that, and at the same time, achieve the sort of energy independence that my Republican friends want to see. What I can't do, though, Lee, is I can't convince people who are bought and paid for by the fossil fuel industry. It's like the old saying, those convinced against their will are of the same opinion still. If you look at the campaign finance system and you see some of these members who are getting just insane amounts of money from fossil fuel lobbyists and from oil companies and so forth, it's not easy to convince them look at facts objectively as opposed to what their friends in industry are telling them. And I, I understand that. The good news is we're not going to have to change everyone's mind. If we really want to see bold climate legislation, you can do it via two mechanisms. You can do what we did with the Inflation Reduction Act, which is all based on the budget reconciliation process, not to go too far into the weeds here, but anything that's based on revenue or taxation, you can get by with 50 votes in the Senate as opposed to 60 once you pass it in the House. If you want to go beyond that, then you need to overcome the filibuster, which is 60 votes. So as we think about uh, different policy objectives, if they can be achieved via uh, reconciliation and avoid the filibuster, that's great. Some things can, like tax policy, some things can't. At the end of the day, you don't need 100. You just need to get a majority in the House and either 50 or 60 in the Senate. It would be nice to get a majority, a true majority, even above 60 to beat the filibuster, just because it represents more of our government wanting to make this happen. And given the urgency, I think we need that. Well, I agree, but I'll take what I can get. (laughs) And we've come a long way. If you go back to Waxman-Markey, which was very important legislation not all that long ago, it passed the House, but it was a few votes short in the Senate. And you know a lot of the midterm losses that House Democrats experienced in the wake of that legislation, a lot of the blame from the punditry and the Washington Beltway was, well, you can't have a bill on climate because it's a political loser. But I think we're in a vastly different spot 15 years later. You had folks like Sean Kasson and myself that ran on the clean energy issue. You know, my ballot designation when I first ran in 2017, 18 was clean energy advocate. And Sean and I had become very good friends. We both ran. We I, we believe we were two of the first to run as clean energy advocates. And we serve as clean energy advocates. And it's a winning political issue. I'm proud to be part of something called SEEK, the Sustainable Energy and Environment Coalition. It's now around 100 members And I tell them, hey, the water's fine in here. You don't have to fear being for aggressive action on tackling the climate crisis. Because at the end of the day, it's no longer theoretical for people. They're living it. 
They're breathing it. They're experiencing it. They see that we need to take action. And my hope is that in time, more Republicans will get a little bit of courage about this because there are those who fundamentally understand the science. And I don't even say believe the science they because it's not about belief. You either accept or you don't accept. And they accept the science, Lee, but they have to accept the political winds have changed and that they don't necessarily need to do what the American Petroleum Institute or the fossil lobbyists tell them to do. So we're getting there slowly. I agree. Unfortunately, it's too slow for my taste and I think for the human race's taste. I think we need it to rev up just a bit. With regards to climate, what were setbacks that you've had in your career? Well, when we initially had the select committee on the climate crisis, you know, Speaker Pelosi put it together and we came out with a very comprehensive report in uh, 2020, I believe the summer of 2020, and it put together three, 400 pages worth of recommendations of things that Congress had either proposed or should propose to tackle all aspects of the climate crisis. And from that, we developed a lot of the policies that became Build Back Better. The setback was when the Senate would not advance Build Back Better. So we had a few of the policies that were in the bipartisan infrastructure law, like $7.5 billion for EV charging, things like that. But a lot of the policies that we really needed were included in Build Back Better and then left on the shelf when Senator Manchin, you know, who's now you know talking about running as an independent, maybe for president, uh, and who obviously you know has a lot of uh, fossil fuel industry ties in West Virginia, simply would not go along with the actions that we felt were necessary to tackle the climate crisis. That being the case, they came back and Manchin did agree to the Inflation Reduction Act, but while the IRA is still the biggest climate bill ever, $370 billion in tax policy to incentivize you know, everything from renewable energy to energy efficiency and all the rest, there's still a ton that didn't get across the line. So that was a big disappointment. The second disappointment was when Kevin McCarthy became speaker. Every speaker has the opportunity to create select committees. So in addition to the standing committees, the speaker can create select committees. Nancy Pelosi created the select committee on the climate crisis. Kevin McCarthy disbanded it. And we haven't had a climate-related, specifically one committee, climate-related policy since then. And McCarthy didn't want to do it because the fossil industry didn't want to have that committee exist. And so my comment was, keep the committee going. We can have debate. We can, we can debate in good faith about these issues. Call it whatever you like. If you don't like the name Select Committee on the Climate Crisis, call it the Select Committee uh, on Fossil Fuel. I don't care. But let us have the debate over the policy objectives and the right strategies to get us from here to there. And they wouldn't go for it. So th those are two disappointments. Since I made you talk about those disappointments, what success are you most proud of? Well, I think it's clearly the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, and the 170,000 clean energy jobs that have already been announced, the hundreds of billions of dollars that will be used to deploy renewable energy to build so many great projects across the country, 
bipartisan infrastructure law, we're really making good progress. And the CHIPS Act as well, really a shift in domestic manufacturing policy where we're not just going to use technologies that were invented in India, China, Europe, manufactured overseas, but we're going to try to take matters into our own hands with our manufacturing base. And our deployment of these technologies will be hopefully further accelerated. And again, it gets back to the notion of clean energy independence. You know, the other thing that we have to do that I'm working on now with my buddy, Sean Caston is figuring out transmission. Because if we're really going to unlock the full potential of the Inflation Reduction Act and all of the tax policies and the other uh, bells and whistles of that bill, we're going to need to modernize the grid in a very, very meaningful way. And we have to adapt the grid to get the power from where it's being generated from all these new renewable projects to ultimately where it's going to be needed, to where it's going to be used. And doing that is going to require updating, modernizing a very antiquated grid. So the major initiative that we're working on right now uh, is called CETA, the Clean Energy Transmission Acceleration Act. Sean and I are going to be announcing it very soon, and we we already have gotten a whole bunch of co-sponsors. But the, the gist of it is that it shouldn't be easier to build a multi-state pipeline than it is to build a multi-state transmission line for solar or wind. The opposite should be true. And so that's our objective. And you think transmission would be something everybody could get behind? You would, but the reality is if you are a fossil fuel dependent community and you have a transmission project that is being discussed, that might be the biggest threat that you see if you're so beholden to fossil fuel. But my hope is that people will recognize, hey, this will be good for everyone. If we do it the right way, it'll be good for everyone. And the idea here is more reliability, lower costs, saving money in people's pockets, not being dependent on the bad geopolitics of the Middle East or elsewhere as it pertains to where we get fossil fuels. Obviously, there are massive environmental benefits as well to accelerating the deployment of renewables. But I I hope people will get it and there'll be a lot of fear and misinformation, disinformation, uncertainty about all of this. But I think in time, as those projects are deployed, the jobs are created, it's a better future for all of us. When you look at the future of the human race, 20, 30 years out, what do you think it looks like? How has climate change affected us? Well, I hope that we're not too late to meaningfully mitigate the worst impacts of the climate crisis. I've read a lot, and ultimately, there is no one right answer here. I think of David Walswell's Uninhabitable Earth and the, the portrait that, that he paints if we fail to take action, and that's what we're all fighting against. Uh, I think it's pretty simple. I, I want my kids and their kids to be able to breathe the air, drink the water, enjoy our amazing community that we're all so fortunate to live in. And ultimately, I think the U.S. can lead the way. I think, again, the question that I ask myself is 30 years from now, 40 years from now, I think it's fairly certain that there will be a whole host of new technologies that will be deployed as it pertains to how we move people around, how we move goods around, how we build buildings, how we grow food, 
how we generate electricity to do all of the above. So all of that's going to change and it's going to improve and it'll get better. But I think the fundamental question that I have is number one, will the U.S. be merely using technologies developed, manufactured elsewhere, or will we be taking advantage of domestically invented, manufactured technologies and, and growing the, the companies along with it? And then number two, are we doing it at a rate that is commensurate with what science says we must do? But the American system, Lee, elections have consequences, right? So it, it's so critically important that we continue to elect climate champions across the board. And if you look at the president's climate assessment, or you look at any of the research being done by the scientific community right now, the impact of local and state action is incredibly important too. So it's not just what the federal government does, it's what our governors do, it's what our mayors do. You know, we all can use our best judgment at the ballot box if we all want to participate in the type of change that's necessary. And with those words of advice, I'm going to wrap this up and I'm going to wrap it up with a wrap. Well, you grew up in L.A. and when you went for a jog, your lungs would burn because of the smog. It inspired you. And I've heard it before. Earth in the Balance, written by Al Gore. If you use the same message with everyone, you won't go far to get your point across. Meet people where they are. Good luck when you run again. I hope you win. I enjoy talking to you. You made me grin. Thank you so much, Mike Levin. Lee, I can't follow that, man. Thank you for having me. <laughs> that was great. Thank you. found it both interesting and exciting to hear about Mike being one of the first congressional candidates to ever not only run, but win on the climate change issue. I am hopeful for the day when, like many European countries, parties almost all accept climate change science, only differing on the details of how to address the issue. If you have comments or questions about the podcast, visit my website at crevatenergyinnovations.com and drop me an email. I would love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the Climate Champions podcast series, please subscribe, rate it five stars if you're an Apple user, and tell your climate-concerned friends about it. And again, please join me at Distributech in Orlando on February 28th for a live episode. And don't forget about the 20% discount code, DTPART30. Many of my guests often discuss the small things we can all do to help mitigate climate change. LED light bulbs, eat a little less beef, walk instead of drive when you're close to where you're going, and some mention more difficult things. Buy a hybrid or electric car, put solar on your rooftop. But something we can all easily do is find out which candidates are sincerely concerned and willing to do something about climate change. Voting for those candidates will make it an issue that unites the United States and the world and helps to mitigate climate change.